occult philosophy or magic, natural magic, written in 1533 by Cornelius Agrippa, narrated by Graham Dunlop, audio editing by Darren Grimes. Work of occult philosophy or natural magic by that pure mystic thinker and teacher, scholar, statesman, philosopher, and author, Henry Cornelius Agrippa, was brought forth by him through slander, edict, and enemies opposed. He lived, toiled, and triumphed in this cause. To those who have a love for truth and mystic art, this new edition is dedicated. Agrippa Mr. Henry Morley, an eminent English scholar in his life of Cornelius Agrippa, makes these tributary statements. He secured the best honors attainable in art and arms, was acquainted with eight languages, being the master of six. His natural bent had been from early youth to a consideration of divine mysteries. To learn these and teach them to others had been at all times his chief ambition. He is distinguished among the learned for his cultivation of occult philosophy, upon which he has written a complete work. The Occult Philosophy Judicious Reader This is true and sublime occult philosophy. To understand the mysterious influence of the intellectual world upon the celestial, and of both upon the terrestrial, and to know how to dispose and fit ourselves so as to be capable of receiving the superior operations of these worlds, whereby we may be enabled to operate wonderful things by natural power. To discover the secret counsels of men, to increase riches, to overcome enemies, to procure the favor of men, to expel diseases, to preserve health, to prolong life, to renew youth, to foretell future events, to see and know things done many miles off, and such like as these. These things may seem incredible, Yet read but the ensuing treatise, and thou shalt see the possibility confirmed both by reason and example. J. F., the translator of the English edition of 1651. Preface In the last half of 1509 and the first months of 1510, Cornelius Agrippa, known in his day as a magician, gathered together all the mystic lore he had obtained by the energy and ardor of youth and compiled it into the elaborate system of magic in three books, known as Occult Philosophy, the first book of which, Natural Magic, constitutes the present volume. Agrippa published his Occult Philosophy with additional chapters in 1533. The only English translation appeared in London in 1651. It is a thoroughly edited and revised edition of this latter work that we produce. Some translating has been done and missing parts supplied. The reader is assured that while we have modified some of the very broad English of the 17th century, that he has a thoroughly valid work. Due care has been taken to preserve all the quaintness of the English text as far as consistent with the plain reading. We have endeavored to do full justice to our author, the demands of those purely mystical, and the natural conservatism of the antiquary and collector. In this, we believe we have fully succeeded. The life of Agrippa, up to the time of writing his occult philosophy, is also given, drawn mostly from Henry Morley's excellent life of Cornelius Agrippa. That part of the volume credited to Mr. Morley may be designated as an honest skeptic's contribution to mysticism, and his chapters are produced entire, 
as justice to both him and Agrippa cannot be done otherwise, and they are an especially valuable part of mystic literature. The table of the Kabbalah, newly compiled for this volume, will be found to possess superior features over all others. Following the above, we will give a chapter on the Empyrean heaven, which will explain much that our author has written. It is derived mainly from an old occult work on physic. The symbols of the alchemists will be found both useful and instructive. The chapter on the magic mirror, which ends the work, is believed to be the best contribution on the subject extant. All the original illustrations and some new and selected ones will be found, as also various etchings of characters. That one on the Empyrean heaven contains, we have cause to believe, some of the very hidden knowledge relating to the lost word. It is a much older plate than the work it was taken from. Some parts of the volume will interest those who love to work out hidden things. The editor conveys his warmest thanks to those friends who have encouraged him in the work. On the Kabbalah table, the illustration of the Grand Solar Man and the translating, outside of which he has not asked or received any help. This being the case, our friends will please excuse any particular thing that may not sound pleasantly to the ear. A general index will be inserted in the third and concluding volume of the occult philosophy. Early Life of Cornelius Agrippa At Cologne on the 14th of September, 1486, there was born into the noble house of Netesheim a son, whom his parents called in baptism Henry Cornelius Agrippa. Some might, at first thought, suppose that the last of the three was a Christian name, likely to find a special favor with the people of Cologne, the site of whose town, in days of Roman sovereignty, Marcus Agrippa's camp suggested and the colony of Agrippina fixed. But the existence of any such predilection is disproved by some volumes filled with the names of former natives of Cologne. There were as few Agrippas there as elsewhere the use of the name being everywhere confined to a few individuals taken from a class that was itself not numerous. A child who came into the world feet foremost was called an Agrippa by the Romans, and the word itself, so Aulus Gilius explains it, was invented to express the idea, being compounded of the trouble of the woman and the feet of the child. The Agrippas of the 16th century were usually sons of scholars or of persons in upper ranks who had been mindful of a classic precedent, and there can be little doubt that a peculiarity attendant on the very first incident in the life here to be told was expressed by the word used as appendix to an already sufficient Christian name. The son thus christened became a scholar and a subject of discussion among scholars, talking only Latin to the world. His family name, von Nettesheim, he never Latinized, inasmuch as the best taste suggested that if a Latin designation was most proper for a scholar, he could do, or others could do for him, nothing simpler than to set apart for literary purposes that half of his real style, which was already completely Roman. Henry Cornelius Agrippa von Nettesheim became therefore to the world what he is also called in this narrative, Cornelius Agrippa. He is the only member of the family of Nettesheim concerning whom any records have been left for the instruction of posterity. Netesheim itself is a place of little note, distant about 25 miles to the southwest of Cologne. It lies in a valley, 
through which flows the stream from one of the small sources of the rower, the home of the Vonnetesheims, when they were not personally attached to the service of the emperor, was at Cologne. The ancestors of Cornelius Agrippa had been for generations in the service of the royal house of Austria. His father had, in this respect, walked in the steps of his forefathers, and from a child Cornelius looked for nothing better than to do the same. It is proper to mention that among the scholars of Germany, one who before the time of Agrippa was known as the most famous of magicians, belonged to the same city of Cologne. For there, in the 13th century, Albertus Magnus taught, and it is there that he is buried. Born in Cologne did not mean in 1486 what it has meant for many generations almost until now, born into the darkness of a moldering receptacle of relics. And the town was not priest-ridden, but rode its priests. For nearly a thousand years, priestcraft and handicraft had battled for predominance within its walls. Priestcraft expelled the Jews, banished the weavers, and gained thoroughly the mastery at last. But in the time of Cornelius Agrippa, handicraft was uppermost, and in the sacred Cologne, every trader and mechanic did his part in keeping watch on the archbishop. Europe contained then but few cities that were larger, busier, and richer. For the Rhine was a main highway of commerce, and she was enriched, not only by her manufacturers and merchants, but at the same time also by a large receipt of toll. Commerce is the most powerful antagonist to despotism, and in whatever place both are brought together, one of them must die. Passing by the earlier times to about the year 1350, there arose a devilish persecution of the Jews in many parts of Europe, and the Jews of Cologne, alarmed by the sufferings to which others of their race had been exposed, withdrew into their houses with their wives and children, and burnt themselves in the midst of their possessions. The few who had flinched from this self-immolation were banished, and their houses and lands, together with all the land that had belonged to Cologne Jews, remained as spoils in the hands of the Cologne Christians. All having been converted into cash, the gains of the transaction were divided equally between the town and the archbishop. The Jews, twenty years later, were again allowed to reside in the place on payment of a tax for the protection granted them. In 1369, the city was again in turmoil, caused by a dispute concerning privileges between the authorities of the church and the town council. The weavers, as a democratic body, expressed their views very strong, and there was fighting in the streets. The weavers were subdued. They fled to the churches and were slain at the altars. Eighteen hundred of them, all who survived, were banished, suffering, of course, confiscation of their property, and Cologne being cleared of all its weavers, who had carried on no inconsiderable branch of manufacture, their guild was demolished. This event occurred twenty years after the town had lost, in the Jews, another important part of this industrial population, and the proud city thus was passing into its first stage of its decay. In 1388, a university was established at Cologne, upon the model of the University of Paris. Theology and scholastic philosophy were the chief studies cultivated in it, and they were taught in such a way as to win many scholars from abroad. Eight years afterwards, churchmen, nobles, and traders were again contesting their respective claims, and blood was again shed in the streets. The nobles, assembled by night at a secret meeting, were surprised and the final conquest of the trading class was in that way assured. A new constitution was then devised, continuing in the force during the lifetime of Cornelius Agrippa.
The von Nettesheims were likely to be on better terms with the archbishop than with the party who opposed him, and they were in the emperor's service. This must have influenced the early years of Agrippa. In these early years, he displayed a rare aptitude for study, and as Cologne was an university town, and printing, discovered shortly before his birth, was carried on there in the production of Latin classics, the writings of aesthetics, scholastics, and mystics like Thomas Aquinas and Albertus Magnus, it was only natural he should avail his eager desire for knowledge at these sources. He was remarkably successful in the study of European languages also, becoming proficient in several. Thus, his years of home training were passed until he arrived at the age when princes are considered fit to be produced at court. He then left Cologne and became an attendant on the Emperor of Germany, Maximilian I, whom he served first as a secretary, afterwards for seven years as a soldier. At the age of 20, he was employed on secret service by the German court. At this time, Spain was in a chaotic political condition. Ferdinand, the widower of Isabella, was excluded from the crown after his wife's death, that inheritance having passed with his daughter Joanna, as a dower to her husband Philip, who was the son of Maximilian. In September 1506, Philip died, shortly before having declared war against France. Thus it was that Cornelius went to Paris, ostensibly to attend a university there, but in reality to keep Maximilian advised on the important news regarding the French. In the capacity of a secret service, in which he was engaged more than once, he showed himself abundantly able to preserve diplomatic secrets. Though concerning his own affairs, he was open, frank, and free. Thus he is silent in regard to official duties at this time. In attending the university, Agrippa came in contact with several other minds who had a love for the occult mystics who found in him a natural leader to guide them into the realms of the unknown. With these he organized a secret band of theosophists, or possibly Rosicrucians. Among these mystics was one more prominent as the friend of Agrippa, who might be regarded as second in leadership, an Italian by the name of Blasius, Caesar Landulfus, who afterwards became noted in medicine and also a professor in the University of Pavia. Among them were M.M. M. Germain, advocate and author of A History of Charles V, etc., Ganey, theologian, linguist, Latin poet, and successively procurator, rector, and chancellor of the Paris University, Charles Foucault, M. de Molenflot, Charles de Boulle, canon, professor of theology, and author of works on metaphysics and geometry, among which he treated of the quadrature of the circle, and the cubication of the sphere and other unusual matters. Germain Debris, canon, linguist, and writer of Greek verse. M.M. M. Foss, Wigand, and Claire Chomps. Watin Basquera de Girona, a young Catalonian nobleman, temporarily at Paris while on his way to the court of Maximilian. Disturbances in Spain had spread to Aragon and Catalonia. And in the district of Tarragon, the Catalonians had chased one of their local masters, the senior de Garona, the last named of the secret band above. Agrippa and his friends devised a plan whereby Garona could be restored to his estates. The capture of a fortification known as the Black Fort was necessary to the enterprise, and to effect this, a daring stratagem was decided upon. 
As the whole province of Tarragon could thus be held against the rebellious peasantry, it was believed the Emperor Maximilian would sanction the enterprise in behalf of his kin, and Girona went to the German court for this purpose. Agrippa also returned to Cologne for a season early in 1507. It was over a year afterwards when the plans of the conspirators were carried out. The Black Fort was captured as planned by a stratagem. After remaining there for a time, Agrippa was sent with some others to garrison the place at Girona, at Villarodona. Landolf had meanwhile gone to Barcelona, and it was deemed prudent that Girano, the peasants of the whole country now being in arms, should join him there. Girona was, however, captured by the infuriated rustics, who immediately organized themselves in great force to storm his castle and exterminate the garrison there who, in Girona's absence, were under the charge of Agrippa. Timely warning of the attack was conveyed to the garrison. To escape by breaking through the watches of the peasantry was madness. To remain was equally futile. But one way of escape presented itself. An old, half-ruined tower, three miles distant, situated in one of the mountain wildernesses, which characterized the district of Vaults. The tower stood in a craggy, cavernous valley where the broken mountains make way for a gulf containing stagnant waters, and jagged, inaccessible rocks hem it in. At the gorge by which this place is entered stood the tower, on a hill which was itself surrounded by deep bogs and pools, while it also was within a ring of lofty crags. There was but one way to this tower, except when the ground was frozen and these events happened in the midsummer of 1508. The way among the pools was by a narrow path of stone, with turf walls as hedges. The sight of the tower made it inexpungible in summertime. It was owned by an abbot, who gave them permission to occupy and fortify it. This they accordingly done, having a poor bailiff in charge of the place for company. The retreat to the tower was safely accomplished under the cover of night. Girona's place was sacked the next day by the peasants, who sought fiercely for the German, as they termed Agrippa. The hiding place of the conspirators became known. The flood of wrath poured down towards the tower, but the strength of the position was then felt. With a barricade of overthrown wagons, the sole path to the besieged was closed, and behind this barrier they posted themselves with the arquebuses, of which one only sufficed to daunt a crowd of men accustomed to no weapons except slings or bows and arrows. The peasantry, discovering that the tower was not to be stormed, settled down to lay strict siege to the place and thereby starve its little garrison into surrender. Perilous weeks were passed by the adventurers, but more formidable than actual conflict was the famine consequent on their blockade. Perrault, the keeper, taking counsel with himself as how to help his guests and rid himself of them at the same time, explored every cranny of the wall of rock which they were surrounded. Clambering among the wastes with feet accustomed to the difficulties of the mountain, he discovered at last a devious and rugged way by which the obstacles of crag and chasm were avoided and the mountaintop reached. Looking down from there, he saw how on the other side the mountain rose out of a lake known as the Black Lake having an expanse of about four miles, upon the farther shore of which his master's abbey stood. He found a way to the lake through the rocky gorge, but from there to the abbey was a long way, and to men without a boat, the lake was a more impassable barrier than the mountain. He returned to the tower, 
where the little garrison heard the result of his explorations. It was seen that a boat was necessary to effect the escape. And to procure that, a letter would have to be sent through the ranks of the vigilant besiegers, whose sentries were posted at all points, and who allowed no one to approach the tower. Not even the good abbot himself, who had vainly tried to turn the peasants from their purpose. Under these circumstances, the ingenuity of Agrippa was severely tested, and he justified the credit he had won for subtle wit. The keeper had a son, a shepherd boy, and Agrippa disfigured him with stains of milk thistle and the juice of other herbs, befouled his skin and painted it with shocking spots to imitate the marks of leprosy, fixed his hair into a filthy bunch, dressed him like a beggar, and gave him a crooked branch for a stick, within which there scooped a hollow for the letter. Upon the boy so disguised, a fearful picture of the outcast leper, the leper's bell was hung. His father seated him on an ox and led him by night across the marches by the ford, where he left him. Stammering as he went, petitions for alms, the boy walked without difficulty by a very broad road made for him along the peasantry, who regarded his approach with terror and fled from his path. The letters was safely delivered, the boy returning the next day with the desired answer, ringing his bell at the border of the marsh at dark for his father to bring him in. Agrippa and his companions spent the night in preparations for departure. Towards dawn, they covered their retreat by a demonstration of their usual state of watchfulness, fired their guns, and gave other indications of their presence. This done, they set forth in dead silence, carrying their baggage, and were guided by Perot, the keeper, to the summit. There they gladly laid down among the stones to rest while their guide descended on the other side and spread a preconcerted signal, a white cloth upon a rock. When he returned, they ate the breakfast they had brought with them, all sitting with their eyes towards the lake. At about nine o'clock, two fishermen's barks were discerned, which hoisted a red flag, the good abbot's signal. Rejoicing at the sight of this, the escaped men fired off their guns in triumph from the mountaintop, a hint to the besieging peasantry of their departure and at the same time as signal to the rescuers. Still following Perot, they next descended along ways by him discovered, through the rocky gorge to the meadows that bordered the lake. Entering the boats, before evening they found themselves safe under the abbot's roof. The day of this escape was the 14th of August, 1508. They had been suffering siege there for almost two months in the mountain fastness. Cornelius Agrippa, being saved, could quit the scene, and done so without waiting to see how the difficulty would be solved between the Catalonian peasants and their master. It perplexed him much that he had no tidings of Landulf, his closest friend. The abbot advised him to go to court again, but Agrippa replied that he had no mind to risk being again sent upon the hazardous mission. After remaining several days in the abbey, he set out, with an old man and his servant Stephen, for Barcelona. Antonius Xanthus, the companion of Agrippa, had seen much of the rough side of the world, was useful as a traveling companion, and became a member of Agrippa's secret league. Not finding Landolf at Barcelona, they traveled to Valencia. From there they sailed for Italy, and by way of the Balearic Islands and Sardinia, they went to Naples, where, disheartened by not finding Landolf, they shipped for Leghorn, and then traveled to Avignon. 
There they learned from a traveling merchant that Landolf was at Lyon. The friends now corresponded, Cornelius writing December 17th, nearly four months after he had left the abbey in search of his friend, the 24th of August. We may imagine many of the things these friends wrote to each other. It was the suggestion of Agrippa that all the members of their league be called together that they might be absolved of their oaths regarding the Spanish conspiracy and to resume once more their former pleasant relations. He also hoped that Landolf might be able to visit him at Avignon and talk their secrets over as he was unable to leave for Lyon, his funds being exhausted until after the lapse of a little time. The foregoing account, which has been condensed from Mr. Henry Morley's Excellent Life of Cornelius Agrippa, is continued in that part of this volume that starts with the heading of Agrippa and the Rosicrucians. Agrippa's life now becomes so interwoven with mysticism that we give Morley's account in full. The next chapters in his life are replete with the fruition of his mystic nature, its full-blown flower being the occult philosophy, or three books of magic, the writing of which completes his early life. Cornelius Agrippa to the Reader I do not doubt but the title of our book of occult philosophy or of magic may by the rarity of it allure many to read it, amongst which some of a disordered judgment and some that are perverse will come to hear what I can say, who by their rash ignorance may take the name of magic in the worst sense, and, though scarce, having seen the title, cry out that I teach forbidden arts, sow the seeds of heresies, offend the pious, and scandalize excellent wits, that I am a sorcerer and superstitious and devilish, who indeed am a magician, to whom I answer that a magician doth not, amongst learned men, signify a sorcerer, or one that is superstitious or devilish, but a wise man, a priest, a prophet, and that the sibyls were magicianesses, and therefore prophesied most clearly of Christ, and that magicians, as wise men, by the wonderful secrets of the world, knew Christ, the author of the world, to be born, and came first of all to worship him, and that the name of magic was received by philosophers, commended by divines. And it is not unacceptable to the gospel. I believe that the supercilious censors will object against the sibyls, holy magicians, and the gospel itself, sooner than receive the name of magic into favor. So conscientious are they that neither Apollo, nor all the muses, nor an angel from heaven can redeem me from their curse whom therefore I advise that they read not our writings, nor understand them, nor remember them. For they are pernicious and full of poison. The gate of Acheron is in this book. It speaks stones. Let them take heed that it beat not out their brains. But you that come without prejudice to read it, if you have so much discretion of prudence as bees have in gathering honey, Read securely, and believe that you shall receive no little profit, and much pleasure. But if you shall find any things that may not please you, let them alone, and make no use of them. For I do not approve of them, but declare them to you. But do not refuse other things, for they that look into the books of physicians do, together with antidotes and medicines, read also of poisons. I confess that magic teacheth many superfluous things, and curious prodigies for ostentation. Leave them as empty things, 
yet be not ignorant of their causes. But those things which are for the profit of men, for the turning away of evil events, for the destroying of sorceries, for the curing of diseases, for the exterminating of phantasms, for the preserving of life, honor, or fortune, may be done without offense to God or injury to religion, because they are as profitable, so necessary. But I have admonished you that I have writ many things rather narratively than affirmatively. For so it seemed needful that we should pass over fewer things, following the judgment of Platonists and other Gentile philosophers, when they did suggest an argument of writing to our purpose. Therefore, if any error have been committed, or anything hath been spoken more freely, pardon my youth. For I wrote this, being scarce a young man, that I may excuse myself and say, whilst I was a child, I spake as a child, and I understood as a child. But being become a man, I retracted those things which I did being a boy, and in my book of the vanity and uncertainty of sciences I did, for the most part, retract this book. But here, haply, you may blame me again, saying, Behold thou, being a youth, didst write, and now being old, hast retracted it. What therefore hast thou set forth? I confess, whilst I was very young, I sat upon the writing of these books, but hoping that I should set them forth with corrections and enlargements. And for that cause I gave them to Trithemius, a Neapolitanian abbot, formerly a Spanhemenesian, a man very industrious after secret things. But it happened afterwards that, the work being intercepted before I finished it, it was carried about imperfect and impolished, and did fly about in Italy and France and Germany, through many men's hands, and some men, whether more impatiently or imprudently I know not, would have put it thus imperfect to the press, with which mischief I, being affected, determined to set it forth myself, thinking that there might be less danger if these books came out of my hands, with some amendments and to come forth torn and in fragments, out of other men's hands. Moreover, I thought it no crime if I should not suffer the testimony of my youth to perish. Also, we have added some chapters, and inserted many things which did seem unfit to pass by, which the curious reader shall be able to understand by the inequality of the very phrase. For we were unwilling to begin the work anew, and to unravel all that we had done but to correct it and put some flourish upon it. Wherefore, I pray thee, courteous reader, weigh not these things according to the present time of setting them forth, but pardon my curious youth if thou find anything in them that may displease thee. When Agrippa first wrote his occult philosophy, he sent it to his friend Trithemius, an abbot of Würzburg, with the ensuing letter. Trithemius detained the messenger until he had read the manuscript and then answered Agrippa's letter with such sound advice as mystics would do well to follow for all time to come. Trithemius is known as a mystic, author, and scholar. Agrippa to Trithemius To R.P.D. John Trithemius, an abbot of St. James, in the suburbs of Herbopolis, Henry Cornelius Agrippa of Nettesheim sendeth greeting. When I was of late, most reverend father, for a while conversant with you in your monastery of Herbopolis, we conferred together of diverse things concerning chemistry, magic, and Kabbalah, and of other things, which as yet lie hid in secret sciences and arts. 
And then there was one great question amongst the rest. Why magic? Whereas it was accounted by all ancient philosophers to be the chiefest science. And by the ancient wise men and priests was always held in great veneration. Came at last, after the beginning of the Catholic Church, to be always odious to and suspected by the Holy Fathers, and then exploded by divines, and condemned by sacred canons, and moreover by all laws and ordinances forbidden. Now the cause, as I conceive, is no other than this, viz. because by a certain fatal deprivation of times and men, many false philosophers crept in, and these under the name of magicians, heaping together through various sorts of errors and factions of false religions, many cursed superstitions and dangerous rites, and many wicked sacrileges, even to the perfection of nature, and the same set forth in many wicked and unlawful books, to which they have by stealth prefixed the most honest name and title of magic, hoping by this sacred title to gain credit to their cursed and detestable fooleries. Hence it is this name of magic, formerly so honorable, is now become most odious to good and honest men, and accounted a capital crime if anyone dare profess himself to be a magician, either in doctrine or works unless haply some certain old doting woman dwelling in the country would be believed to be skillful and have a divine power, that she, as saith Apuleius the satirist, can throw down the heaven, lift up the earth, harden mountains, wash away mountains, raise up ghosts, cast down the gods, extinguish the stars, illuminate hell, or as Virgil sings, She'll promise by her charms to cast great cares, or ease the minds of men, and make the stars for to go back, and rivers to stand still, and raise the nightly ghosts even at her will, to make the earth to groan and trees to fall from the mountains. Hence those things which Lucan relates of Thessala, the Magicianus, and Homer, of the omnipotency of Cirque, whereof many others, I confess, are as well of a fallacious opinion as a superstitious diligence and pernicious labor. For when they cannot come under a wicked art, yet they presume they may be able to cloak themselves under that venerable title of magic. These things being so, I wondered much, and was not less indignant that, as yet, there had been no man who had either vindicated the sublime and sacred discipline from the charge of impiety, or had delivered it purely and sincerely to us. What I have seen of our modern writers, Roger Bacon, Robert of York, an Englishman, Peter Aponus, Albertus Magnus, the Teutonic, Arnoldus de Villanova, Anselm, the Parmenesian, Picatrix, the Spaniard, Cyclus, Asculus of Florence, and many other writers of an obscure name when they promise to treat of magic, do nothing but relate irrational tales and superstitions unworthy of honest men. Hence my spirit was moved, and by reason partly of admiration and partly of indignation, I was willing to play the philosopher, supposing that I should do no discommendable work, seeing I have been always from my youth a curious and undaunted searcher for wonderful effects and operations full of mysteries. If I should recover that ancient magic, the discipline of all wise men, from the errors of impiety, purify and adorn it with its proper luster, and vindicate it from the injuries of culminators, which thing, though I long deliberated of it in my mind, 
I never durst undertake. But after some conference betwixt us of these things, at Herbipolis, your transcending knowledge and learning and your ardent adoration put courage and boldness into me. There selecting the opinions of philosophers of known credit and purging the introduction of the wicked, who disassemblingly and with a counterfeited knowledge did teach that traditions of magicians must be learned from very reprobate books of darkness or from institutions of wonderful operations. And removing all darkness, I have at last composed three compendious books of magic entitled them Of Occult Philosophy. Being a title less offensive, which books I submit, you excelling in the knowledge of these things, to your correction and censure, that if I have wrote anything which may tend either to the contumely of nature, offending God, or injury of religion, you may condemn the error. But if the scandal of impiety be dissolved and purged, you may defend the tradition of truth, and that you would do so with these books and magic itself, that nothing may be concealed which may not be profitable, and nothing improved of which cannot but do hurt. By which means these three books, having passed your examination with approbation, may at length be thought worthy to come forth with good success in public, and may not be afraid to come under the censure of posterity. Farewell and pardon these my bold undertakings. Trithemius to Agrippa John Trithemius, abbot of St. James of Herbipolis, formerly of Spanheimia, to his Henry Cornelius Agrippa of Nettesheim, Health and Love. Your work, most renowned Agrippa, entitled of Occult Philosophy, which you have sent by this bearer to me, has been examined. With how much pleasure I received it, no mortal tongue can express, nor the pen of any right. I wondered at your more than vulgar learning, that you, being so young, should penetrate into such secrets as have been hid from the most learned men, and not only clearly and truly, but also properly and elegantly set them forth. Whence first I give you thanks for your goodwill to me, and if I shall ever be able, I shall return you thanks to the utmost of my power. Your work, which no learned man can sufficiently commend, I approve of. Now that you may proceed toward higher things, as you have begun, and not suffer such excellent parts of wit to be idle, I do, with as much earnestness as I can, advise, entreat, and beseech you that you would exercise yourself in laboring after better things, and demonstrate the light of true wisdom to the ignorant, according as you yourself are divinely enlightened. Neither let the consideration of idle, vain fellows withdraw you from your purpose. I say of them, of whom it is said, the wearied ox treads hard whereas no man to the judgment of the wise can be truly learned who is sworn to the rudiments of one only faculty. But you have been by God gifted with a large and sublime wit, and it is not that you should imitate oxen, but rather birds. Neither think it sufficient that you study about particulars, but bend your mind confidently to universals. For by so much the more learned any one is thought, by how much fewer things he is ignorant of, Moreover, your wit is fully apt to all things, and to be rationally employed, not in a few or low things, but many and sublimer. Yet this one rule I advise you to observe, that you communicate vulgar secrets to vulgar friends, 
but hire and secret to hire and secret friends only. Give hay to an ox or sugar to a parrot only. Understand my meaning, lest you be trod under the oxen's feet, as oftentimes it falls out. Farewell, my happy friend, and if it lie in my power to serve you, command me, and according to your pleasure it shall without delay be done. Also let our friendship increase daily. Write often to me and send me some of your labors, I earnestly pray you. Again, farewell. From our monastery at Piopolis, the 8th day of April, A.D.M.D.X. In January 1531, Agrippa wrote to Mechlin, to Hermann of Wheat, Archbishop of Cologne, to whom he dedicated his occult philosophy. In this letter, he says, Behold, amongst such things as were closely laid up, the books of occult philosophy or of magic, a new work of most ancient and abstruse learning, a doctrine of antiquity by none, I dare say, hitherto attempted to be restored. I shall be devotedly yours if these studies of my youth shall by the authority of your greatness come into knowledge, seeing many things in them seem to me being older as most profitable, so most necessary to be known. You have therefore the work not only of my youth but of my present age, having added many things. The etching inserted at this place is made from the title page of the only complete English edition of the Occult Philosophy of Magic, heretofore published. Chapter 1. How Magicians Collect Virtues from the Threefold World is declared in these three books. Seeing there is a threefold world, elementary, celestial, and intellectual, and every inferior is governed by its superior, and receiveth the influence of the virtues thereof, so that the very original and chief worker of all doth by angels, the heavens, stars, elements, animals, plants, metals, and stones, convey from himself the virtues of his omnipotency upon us, for whose service he made and created all these things. Wise men conceive it no way irrational that it should be possible for us to ascend by the same degrees through each world, to the same very original world itself, the maker of all things and first cause, from whence all things are and proceed and also to enjoy not only these virtues, which are already in the more excellent kind of things, but also besides these, to draw new virtues from above. Hence it is that they seek after the virtues of the elementary world, through the help of physic and natural philosophy and the various mixtions of natural things. Then of the celestial world and the rays and influences thereof, according to the rules of astrologers and the doctrines of mathematicians joining the celestial virtues to the former. Moreover, they ratify and confirm all these with the powers of diverse intelligences through the sacred ceremonies of religions. The order and process of all these I shall endeavor to deliver in these three books, whereof the first contains natural magic, the second celestial, and the third ceremonial. But I know not whether it be an unpardonable presumption in me that I, a man of so little judgment and learning, should in my very youth so confidently set upon a business so difficult, so hard and intricate as this is. Wherefore, whatsoever things have here already, and shall afterward be said by me, I would not have any one assent to them, nor shall I myself, 
any further than they shall be approved of by the universal church and the congregation of the faithful. Chapter 2. What magic is? What are the parts thereof? And how the professors, therefore, must be qualified? Magic is a faculty of wonderful virtue, full of most high mysteries, containing the most profound contemplation of most secret things, together with the nature, power, quality, substance, and virtues thereof, as also the knowledge of whole nature, and it doth instruct us concerning the differing and agreement of things amongst themselves, whence it produceth its wonderful effects, by uniting the virtues of things through the application of them one to the other and to their inferior suitable subjects, joining and knitting them together thoroughly by the powers and virtues of the superior bodies. This is the most perfect and chief science, that sacred and sublimer kind of philosophy, and lastly the most absolute perfection of all most excellent philosophy. Foreseeing that all regulative philosophy is divided into natural, mathematical, and theological, Natural philosophy teacheth the nature of those things which are in the world, searching and inquiring into their causes, effects, and times, places, fashions, events, their whole and parts. Also, the number and the nature of those things, called elements, what fire, earth, air, forth brings. From whence the heavens their beginnings had, whence tide, whence rainbow, and gay colors clad. What makes the clouds that gathered are and black, to send forth lightnings and a thundering crack? What doth the nighty flames and comets make? What makes the earth to swell and then to quake? What is the seed of metals and of gold? What virtues wealth doth nature's coffer hold? All these things doth natural philosophy, the view of nature, contain teaching us according to Virgil's muse. Whence all things flow? Whence mankind, beast, whence fire, whence rain and snow, whence earthquakes are, why the whole ocean beats over his banks and then again retreats, whence strength of herbs, whence courage, rage of brutes, all kinds of stone of creeping things and fruits. But mathematical philosophy teaches us to know the quantity of natural bodies, as extended into three dimensions, as also to conceive of the motion and course of celestial bodies. As in great haste, what makes the golden stars to march so fast? What makes the moon sometimes to mask her face? The sun also, as if in some disgrace. And as Virgil sings, How the sun doth rule with twelve zodiac signs, The orb that's measured round about with lines. It doth the heaven's starry way make known, And strange eclipses of the sun and moon. Octurns also, and the stars of rain, The seven stars likewise and Charles his swain. Why winter suns make towards the west so fast, what makes the night so long ere they be past? All which are understood by mathematical philosophy. Hence, by the heavens we may foreknow, the seasons all times to reap and sow, and when tis fit to launch into the deep, and when to war and when in peace to sleep, and when to dig up trees and them again to set, that they may bring forth amen. Now, theological philosophy, or divinity, teacheth what God is, what the mind, what an intelligence, what an angel, what a devil, what the soul, what religion, what sacred institutions, rites, temples, observations, and sacred mysteries are, 
It instructs us also concerning faith, miracles, the virtues of words and figures, the secret operations and mysteries of seals. And as Apuleius saith, it teacheth us rightly to understand and to be skilled in the ceremonial laws, the equity of holy things and rule of religions. But to recollect myself, these three principal faculties magic comprehends, unites, and actuates. Deservedly, therefore, was it by the ancients esteemed as the highest and most sacred philosophy. It was, as we find, brought to light by most sage authors and most famous writers, amongst which principally Zamalxis and Zoroaster were so famous that many believed they were the inventors of this science. Their track, Abaris, the Hyperborean, Charmondus, Demersion, Eudoxus, Hermippus, followed. There were also other eminent choice men, as Mercurius, Trismegistus, Porphyrus, Amblicus, Plotinus, Proclus, Dardanus, Orpheus, the Thracian, Gog, the Grecian, Germa, the Babylonian, Apollonius of Tyana. Austenes also wrote excellently of this art, whose books being, as it were, lost, Democritus of Abdera recovered and set them forth with his own commentaries. Besides Pythagoras and Podocles, Democritus, Plato, and many other renowned philosophers traveled far by sea to learn this art, and being returned, published it with wonderful devoutness, esteeming of it as a great secret. Also it is well known that Pythagoras and Plato went to the prophets of Memphis to learn it, and traveled through almost all of Syria, Egypt, Judea, and the schools of the Chaldeans, that they might not be ignorant of the most sacred memorials and records of magic, as also that they might be furnished with divine things. Whosoever, therefore, is desirous to study in this faculty, if he be not skilled in natural philosophy, wherein are discovered the qualities of things, and in which are found the occult properties of every being, and if he be not skillful in the mathematics and in the aspects, and figures of the stars, upon which depends the sublime virtue and property of everything, if he not be learned in theology, wherein are manifested those immaterial substances, which dispense and minister all things, he cannot be possibly able to understand the rationality of magic. For there is no work that is done by mere magic, nor any work that is merely magical, that doth not comprehend these three faculties. Chapter 3 Of the four elements, their qualities, and mutual mixtions. There are four elements and original grounds of all corporeal things, fire, earth, water, air, of which all elemented inferior bodies are compounded, not by way of heaping them up together, but by transmutation and union, and when they are destroyed, they are resolved into elements. For there is none of the sensible elements that is pure, but they are more or less mixed and apt to be changed into one another. Even as earth becoming dirty and being dissolved becomes water, and at the same being made thick and hard become earth again, but being evaporated through heat passeth into air, and that being kindled passeth into fire, and this being extinguished returns back again into air, but being cooled again after its burning becomes earth or stone or sulfur and this is manifested by lightning. Plato also was of that opinion that earth was wholly changeable, 
and that the rest of the elements are changed as into this, so into one another successively. But it is the opinion of the subtler sort of philosophers that earth is not changed, but relented and mixed with other elements, which do dissolve it, and that it returns back into itself again. Now every one of the elements hath two specifical qualities, the former whereof it retains as proper to itself, and the other as a mean it agrees with that which comes next after it, for fire is hot and dry, the earth dry and cold, the water cold and moist, the air moist and hot. And so after this manner, the elements, according to two contrary qualities, are contrary one to the other, as fire to water, and earth to air. Moreover, the elements are upon another account opposite one to the other, for some are heavy, as earth and water, and others are light, as air and fire. Wherefore, the Stoics called the former passives, but the latter actives. And yet, once again, Plato distinguisheth them from another manner, and assigns to every one of them three qualities, viz. to the fire brightness, thinness, and motion, but to the earth darkness, thickness, and quietness. And according to these qualities, the elements of fire and earth are contrary. But the other elements borrow their qualities from these, so that the air receives two qualities of the fire, thinness and motion, and one of the earth, viz. darkness. In like manner, water receives two qualities of the earth, darkness and thickness, and one of fire, viz. motion. But fire is twice more thin than air, thrice more movable, and four times more bright. And the air is twice more bright, thrice more thin, and four times more movable than water. Wherefore, water is twice more bright than earth thrice more thin, and four times more movable. As therefore the fire is to the air, so air is to the water, and water to the earth, and again as the earth is to the water, and so is the water to the air, and the air to the fire. And this is the root and foundation of all bodies, natures, virtues, and wonderful works. And he which shall know these qualities of the elements and their mixtures shall easily bring to pass such things that are wonderful and astonishing, and shall be perfect in magic. Chapter 4 Of a Threefold Consideration of the Elements There are then, as we have said, four elements, without the perfect knowledge whereof we can affect nothing in magic. Now each of them is threefold, so that the number of four may be made up the number twelve. And by passing by the number of seven into the number ten, there may be a progress to the supreme unity, upon which all virtue and wonderful operation depends. Of the first order are the pure elements, which are neither compounded nor changed, nor admixed of mixture, but are incorruptible, and not of which, but through which the virtues of all natural things are brought forth into act. No man is able to declare the virtues because they can do all things upon all things. He which is ignorant of these shall never be able to bring to pass any wonderful matter. Of the second order are elements that are compounded, changeable, and impure, yet such as may by art be reduced to their pure simplicity, whose virtue, when they are thus reduced to their simplicity, doth above all things perfect all occult and common operations of nature. And these are the foundation of the whole natural magic. Of the third order are those elements, which originally and of themselves are not elements, but are twice compounded, various and changeable, one into the other, 
They are the infallible medium and therefore are called the middle nature or soul of the middle nature. Very few there are that understand the deep mysteries thereof. In them is, by means of certain numbers, degrees, and orders, the perfection of every effect in anything soever, whether natural, celestial, or super-celestial. They are full of wonders and mysteries, and are operative, as in magic, natural, so in divine. For from these, through them, proceed the bindings, loosings, and transmutations of all things, the knowing and foretelling of all things to come, also the driving forth of evil and the gaining of good spirits. Let no man, therefore, without these three sorts of elements and the knowledge thereof, be confident that he is able to work anything in the occult sciences of magic and nature. But whosoever shall know how to reduce those of one order into those of another, impure into pure, compounded into simple, and shall know how to understand distinctly the nature, virtue and power of them in number, degrees and order, without dividing the substance, he shall easily attain the knowledge and perfect operation of all natural things and celestial secrets. Chapter 5 of the wonderful natures of fire and earth. There are two things, saith Hermes, viz. fire and earth, which are sufficient for the operation of all wonderful things. The former is active, the latter passive. Fire, as saith Dionysus, in all things, and through all things, comes and goes away bright. It is in all things bright, and at the same time occult and unknown. When it is by itself, no other matter coming to it in which it should manifest its proper action. It is boundless and invisible, of itself sufficient for every action that is proper to it, movable, yielding itself after a manner to all things that come next to it, renewing, guarding nature, enlightening, not comprehending by lights that are veiled over, clear, parted, leaping back, bending upwards, quick in motion, high, always raising motions, comprehending another, not comprehending itself, not standing in need of another, secretly increasing of itself, and manifesting its greatness to things that receive it. Active, powerful, invisibly present in all things at once, it will not be affronted or opposed. But as it were, in a way of revenge, it will reduce, on a sudden, to things into obedience to itself. Incomprehensible, impalpable, not lessened, most rich in all dispensations of itself. Fire, as saith Pliny, is the boundless and mischievous part of the nature of things, it being a question whether it destroys or produceth most things. Fire itself is one, and penetrates through all things, as say the Pythagoreans also spread abroad in the heavens, and shining. But in the infernal place, straightened, dark, and tormenting. In the midway, it partakes of both. Fire, therefore, in itself is one, but in that which receives it, manifold, and in differing subjects it is distributed in a different manner, as Clenthes witnesseth in Cicero, that fire, then, which we use, is fetched out of other things. It is in stones, and is fetched out by the stroke of the steel. 
It is in earth and makes that after digging up to smoke. It is in water and heats up springs and wells. It is in the depth of the sea and makes that, being tossed with winds, warm. It is in the air and makes it, as we oftentimes see, to burn. And all animals and living things whatsoever, as also all vegetables, are preserved by heat. And everything that lives, lives by reason of that enclosed heat. The properties of the fire that is above are heat, making all things fruitful, and light, giving life to all things. The properties of the infernal fire are a parching heat, consuming all things, and darkness, making all things barren. The celestial and bright fire drives away spirits of darkness. Also this, our fire made with wood, drives away the same, inasmuch as it hath an analogy with, and is the vehiculum of that superior light, as also of him who saith, I am the light of the world, which is true fire, the father of lights, from whom every good thing that is given comes, sending forth the light of his fire, and communicating it first to the sun and the rest of the celestial bodies. And by these, as by mediating instruments, conveying that light into our fire. As therefore the spirits of darkness are stronger in the dark, so good spirits, which are angels of light, are augmented not only by that light, which is divine, of the sun and celestial, but also by the light of our common fire. Hence it was that the first and most wise institutors of religious and ceremonies ordained that prayers, Singings and all manner of divine worships whatsoever should not be performed without lighted candles or torches. Hence also was that significant saying of Pythagoras, Do not speak of God without a light. And they commanded that for the driving away of wicked spirits, lights and fires should be kindled by the corpses of the dead, and that they should not be removed until the expiations were after a holy manner performed and they buried. And the great Jehovah himself in the old law commanded that all his sacrifices should be offered with fire, and that fire should always be burning upon the altar, which custom the priests of the altar did always observe and keep amongst the Romans. Now the basis and foundation of all the elements is the earth, for that is the object, subject, and receptacle of all celestial rays and influences. In it are contained the seeds and seminal virtues of all things. And therefore, it is said to be animal, vegetable, and mineral. It being fruitful by the other elements in the heavens, it brings forth all things of itself. It receives the abundance of all things and is, as it were, the first fountain from whence all things spring. It is the center, foundation, and mother of all things. Take as much of it as you please, separated, washed, depurated, subtilized. If you let it lie in the open air a little while, it will, being full and abounding with heavenly virtues, of itself bring forth plants, worms, and other living things, also stones and bright sparks of metals. In it are great secrets. If at any time it shall be purified by the help of fire and reduced unto its simplicity by a convenient washing, it is the first matter of our creation and the truest medicine that can restore and preserve us. Chapter 6 Of the Wonderful Natures of Water, Air, and Winds The other two elements, viz. water and air, are not less efficacious than the former, 
neither is nature wanting to work wonderful things in them. There is so great a necessity of water that without it no living thing can live. No herb nor plant whatsoever, without the moistening of water, can branch forth. In it is the seminary virtue of all things, especially of animals. The seeds also of trees and plants, although they are earthy, must notwithstanding of necessity be rotted in water before they can be fruitful, whether they be imbibed with the moisture of the earth, or with dew, or rain, or any other water that is on purpose put to them. For Moses writes, that only earth and water bring forth a living soul. But he ascribes a twofold production of things to water, viz. of things swimming in the waters and of things flying in the air above the earth. And that those productions that are made in and upon the earth are partly attributed to the very water. The same scripture testifies, where it saith that the plants and the herbs did not grow because God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. Such is the efficacy of this element of water that spiritual regeneration cannot be done without it, as Christ himself testified to Nicodemus. Very great also is the virtue of it in the religious worship of God, in expiations and purifications, yea, the necessity of it no less than that of fire. Infinite are the benefits, and diverse are the uses thereof, as being that by virtue of which all things subsist, are generated, nourished, and increased. Thence it was that Thales of Miletus and Hesiod concluded that water was the beginning of all things, and said it was the first of all the elements, and the most potent, and that because it hath the mastery over all the rest. For as Pliny saith, waters swallow up the earth, extinguish flames, ascend on high, and by the stretching forth of the clouds, challenge the heaven for their own. The same falling become the cause of all things that grow in the earth. Very many are the wonders that are done by waters, according to the writings of Pliny, Salinas, and many other historians of the wonderful virtue thereof. Ovid also makes mention in these verses. Horned Hammond's waters at high noon are cold, hot at sunrise and setting sun, wood put in bubbling athemas as fired, the moon then farthest from the sun retired, Ciconian streams congeal his guts to stone, that thereof drinks, and what therein is thrown. Crathus and Sybaris, from the mountains rolled, color the hair like amber or pure gold. Some fountains of a more prodigious kind, not only change the body, but the mind. Who hath not heard of obscene Salmasis, of the Ethiopian lake, for who of this? But only taste their wits no longer keep or forthwith fall into a deadly sleep. Who at clitorius, fountain thirst remove, loathe wine and abstinent, mere water love, with streams opposed to these lincestus flows, they reel as drunk who drink too much of those. A lake in fair Arcadia stands of old, called Phineas, suspected as twofold, fear and forbear to drink thereof by night, by night unwholesome, wholesome by daylight. Josephus also makes relation to the wonderful nature of a certain river betwixt Arcia and Raphania, cities of Syria, which runs with a full channel all the Sabbath day, and then on a sudden seizeth, as if the springs were stopped, and all the six days you may pass over it dry shot, but again on the seventh day, no man knowing the reason of it, wherefore the inhabitants thereabout called it the Sabbath day river, 
because of the seventh day, which was holy to the Jews. The gospel also testifies to a sheep pool, into which whosoever stepped first, after the water was troubled by the angel, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. The same virtue and efficacy we read was in a spring of the Jonian nymphs, which was in the territories belonging to the town of Elis, at a village called Heraclea near the river Scytheron, which whosoever stepped into, being diseased, came forth whole and cured of all his diseases. Bosanius also reports that in Lysias, a mountain of Arcadia, there was a spring called Agria, to which as often as the dryness of the region threatened the destruction of fruits, Jupiter's priest of Lysias went and after the offering of sacrifices, devoutly praying to the waters of the spring, holding a bough of oak in his hand, put it down to the bottom of the hallowed spring. And the waters, being troubled, a vapor ascending from thence into the air was blown into the clouds, with which, being joined together, the whole heaven was overspread. Which, being a little after dissolved into rain, watered all the country most wholesomely. Moreover, Rufus, a physician of Ephesus, besides many other authors, wrote strange things concerning the wonders of waters, which, for aught I know, are found in no other author. It remains that I speak of the air. This is a vital spirit, passing through all beings, given life and subsistence to all things, binding, moving, and filling all things. Hence it is that the Hebrew doctors reckon it amongst the elements, but count it as a medium or glue, joining things together, and as the resounding spirit of the world's instrument. It immediately receives into itself the influences of all celestial bodies, and then communicates them to the other elements, as also to all mixed bodies. Also it receives into itself, as it were a divine looking-glass, the species of all things, as well natural as artificial, as also of all manner of speeches, and retains them, and carrying them with it, and entering into the bodies of men, and with other animals, through their pores, makes an impression upon them, as well when they sleep, as when they be awake, and affords matter for diverse strange dreams and divinations. Hence they say it is that a man passing by a place where a man was slain, with a carcass newly hid, is moved with fear and dread, because of the air in that place being full of the dreadful species of manslaughter, doth, being breathed in, move and trouble the spirit of the man with the like species, whence it is that he comes to be afraid. For everything that makes a sudden impression astonisheth nature. Whence it is that many philosophers were of the opinion that air is the cause of dreams, and of many other impressions of the mind, through the prolonging of images or similitudes or species, which are fallen from things and speeches, multiplied in the very air, until they come to the senses, and then to the fantasy, and soul of him that receives them, which being freed from cares and no way hindered, expecting to meet such kind of species, is informed by them. For the species of things, although of their own proper nature, they are carried to the senses of men, and other animals in general, may notwithstanding get some impression from the heaven whilst they be in the air, by reason of which, together with the aptness and disposition of him that receives them, they may be carried to the sense of one rather than of another. And hence it is possible naturally, and far from all manner of superstition, no other spirit coming between, 
that a man should be able in a very little time to signify his mind unto another man abiding at a very long and unknown distance from him, although he cannot precisely give an estimate of the time when it is. Yet of necessity it must be within twenty-four hours, and I myself know how to do it, and have often done it. The same also in time past did the abbot, Tritinius, both know and do. Also, when certain appearances, not only spiritual, but also natural, do flow forth from things, that is to say, by a certain kind of flowing forth of bodies from bodies, and do gather strength in the air, they offer and show themselves to us, as well through light as motion, as well to the sight as to other senses, and sometimes work wonderful things upon us, as Plotinus proves and teacheth. And we see how by the south wind the air is condensed into thin clouds, in which, as in a looking-glass, are reflected representations at a great distance of castles and mountains, horses and men and other things which, when the clouds are gone, presently vanish. And Aristotle, in his meteors, shows that a rainbow is conceived in the cloud of the air, as in a looking-glass. And Albertus saith that the effigies of bodies may, by the strength of nature, in a moist air, be easily represented, in the same manner as the representations of things are in things. And Aristotle tells of a man to whom it happened, by reason of the weakness of his sight, that the air that was near to him became, as it were, a looking-glass to him, and the optic beam did reflect back upon himself, and could not penetrate the air so that whithersoever he went, he thought he saw his own image, with his face towards him, go before him. In like manner, by the artificialness of some certain looking-glasses, may be produced at a distance in the air. Beside the looking-glass, what images we please, which when ignorant men see, they think they see the appearances of spirits or souls, when indeed they are nothing else but assemblances, kin to themselves and without life. And it is well known, if in a dark place where there is no light, but by the coming in of a beam of the sun somewhere through a little hole, a white paper or plain looking glass be set up against that light, that there may be seen upon them whatsoever things are done without, being shined upon the sun. And there is another slight or trick yet more wonderful. If any one shall take images artificially painted or written letters, and in a clear night set them against the beams of the full moon, whose resemblances, being multiplied in the air and caught upward and reflected back together with the beams of the moon, any other man that is privy to the thing at a long distance sees, reads, and knows them in the very compass and circle of the moon. Which art of declaring secrets is indeed very profitable for towns and cities that are besieged, being a thing which Pythagoras long since did often do, and which is not unknown to some in these days. I will not expect myself, and all these and many more, and greater than these, are grounded in the very nature of the air, and have their reasons and causes declared in mathematics and optics. And as these resemblances are reflected back to the sight, so also sometimes to the hearing, as is manifest in the echo. But there are more secret arts than these, and such whereby any one may at very remote distance hear and understand what another speaks or whispers softly. There are also, from the airy element, winds. 
for they are nothing else but air moved and stirred up. Of these there are four that are principal, blowing from the four corners of the heaven, viz. Notus from the south, Boreas from the north, Zephyrus from the west, Eurus from the east. Which Pontanus, comprehending in these verses, saith, Cold Boreas from the top of Lymphus blows, and from the bottom cloudy Notus flows. From setting Phoebus, frightful Zephyrus flies, and barren Eurus from the suns uprise. Notus is the southern wind, cloudy, moist, warm, and sickly, which Hieronymus calls the butler of the rains. Ovid describes it thus, Out flies south wind with dropping wings who shrouds his fearful aspect in the pitchy clouds, his white hair streams, his beard big swollen with showers. Mists bind his brows, rain from his bosom powers. But Boreas is contrary to notice, and is the northern wind, fierce and roaring and discussing clouds, makes the air serene and binds the water with frost. Him doth Ovid thus bring in speaking of himself. Force me befits, with the thick clouds I drive, toss the blue billows, naughty oakies uprive. Congeal soft snow and beat the earth with hail, when I my brethren in the air assail. For that's our field, we meet with such a shock, that thundering skies with our encounters rock, and clouds struck, lightning flashes from on high. When through the crannies of the earth I fly, and force her in her hollow caves, I make the ghost to tremble and the ground to quake. And Zephyrus, which is the western wind, is most soft, blowing from the west with a pleasant gale. It is cold and moist, removing the effects of winter, bringing forth branches and flowers. To this, Eurus is contrary, which is the eastern wind, and it is called Apuleius. It is waterish, cloudy, and ravenous. Of these two, Ovid sings thus, To Persis and Sabia, Eurus flies, whose gum perfume the blushing morn uprise. Next to the evening and the coast that glows, with setting Phoebus, flowery Zephyrus blows. In Scythia, horrid Boreas holds his reign. Beneath Watis and the frozen vein, the land to this opposed doth uster steep, with fruitful showers and clouds which ever weep. Chapter 7 Of the kinds of compounds, what relation they stand into the elements, and what relation there is betwixt the elements themselves and the soul, senses, and dispositions of men. Next, after the four simple elements, follow the four kinds of perfect bodies compounded of them, and they are stones, metals, plants, and animals. And although unto the generation of each of these all the elements meet together in the composition, yet every one of them follows, and resembles one of the elements, which is most predominant. For all stones are earthy, for they are naturally heavy and descend, and so hardened with dryness that they cannot be melted. But metals are waterish and may be melted, which naturally confess and chemists find to be true. Viz. that they are generated of a viscous water or waterish argent vive. Plants have such an affinity with the air that unless they be abroad in the open air, they do neither bud nor increase. See also all animals. Have in their natures a most fiery force and also spring from a celestial source. And fire is so natural to them, that, that being extinguished they presently die. 
And again, every one of these kinds is distinguished from itself by reason of degrees of the elements. For amongst the stones, they especially are called earthy, that are dark and more heavy. And those waterish, which are transparent, are compacted of water, as crystal, beryl, and pearls, and the shells of fishes. And they are called airy, which swim upon the water, and are sponges, as the stones of a sponge, the pumice stone, and the stone sulphus. And they are called fiery, out of which fire is extracted, or which are produced of fire, as thunderbolts, firestones, and the stones asbestos. Also amongst metals, lead and silver are earthy, quicksilver is waterish, copper and tin are airy, and gold and iron are fiery. In plants also, the roots resemble the earth by reason of their thickness, and the leaves water because of their juice, flowers the air because of their subtlety and the seeds the fire by reason of their multiplying spirit. Besides, they are called some hot, some cold, some moist, some dry, borrowing their names from the qualities of the elements. Amongst animals also, some are in comparison of others earthy, and dwell in the bowels of the earth, as worms and moles and many other small creeping vermin. Others are watery as fishes, others airy, which cannot live out of the air. Others also are fiery, living in the fire, as salamanders and crickets, such as are of fiery heat, as pigeons, ostriches, lions, and such as the wise man calls beasts, breathing fire. Besides, in the animals the bones resemble the earth, flesh the air, the vital spirit the fire, and the humors the water. And these humors also partake of the elements, for yellow collar is instead of fire, blood instead of air, phlegm instead of water, and black collar or melancholy instead of earth. And lastly, in the soul itself, according to Austin, the understanding resembles fire, reason the air, imagination the water, and the senses of earth. And these senses are also divided amongst themselves by reason of the elements, for the sight is fiery. Neither can it perceive without fire and light. The hearing is airy, for a sound is made by the striking of the air. The smell and taste resemble water, without the moisture of which there is neither smell nor taste. And lastly, the feeling is wholly earthy, and taketh gross bodies for its object. The actions also and the operations of man are governed by the elements. The earth signifies a slow and firm motion. The water signifies fearfulness and sluggishness and remissness in working. Air signifies cheerfulness and an amiable disposition, but fire, a fierce, quick, and angry disposition. The elements, therefore, are the first of all things, and all things are of and according to them. And they are in all things, and diffuse their virtues through all things. Chapter 8 how the elements are in the heavens, in stars, in devils, in angels, and lastly, in God himself. It is the unanimous consent of all Platonists that as in the original and exemplary world, all things are in all. So also in this corporeal world, all things are in all. So also the elements are not only in these inferior bodies, but also in the heavens, in stars in devils, in angels, and lastly in God, the maker and original example of all things. Now in these inferior bodies, the elements are accompanied with much gross matter. But in the heavens, the elements are with their natures and virtues. 
These, after a celestial and more excellent manner than in sublunary things. For the firmness of the celestial earth is there without the grossness of water, and the agility of the air without running over its bounds, the heat of fire without burning, only shining and giving life to all things by its heat. Amongst the stars also, some are fiery as Mars and Sol, airy as Jupiter and Venus, watery as Saturn and Mercury, and earthy, such as inhabit the eighth orb and the moon, which, notwithstanding by many, is accounted watery, seeing as if it were earth, it attracts to itself the celestial waters, with which, being imbibed, it doth, by reason of its nearness to us, pour out and communicate to us. There are also amongst the signs some fiery, some earthy, some airy, some watery. The elements rule them also in the heavens, distributing to them these four threefold considerations of every element, these the beginning, middle, and end. So Aries possesseth the beginning of fire, Leo the progress and increase, and Sagittarius the end. Taurus the beginning of the earth, Virgo the progress, Capricorn the end. Gemini, the beginning of the air. Libra, the progress. Aquarius, the end. Cancer, the beginning of water. Scorpius, the middle. And Pisces, the end. Of the mixtions, therefore, of these planets and signs, together with the elements, are all bodies made. Moreover, devils also, upon this account, distinguish the one from the other, so that some are called fiery, some earthy, some airy, and some watery. Hence also those four infernal rivers, say Phlegathon, airy Cositus, watery Styx, earthy Acheron. Also in the gospel we read of hellfire and eternal fire, into which the cursed shall be commanded to go. And in the revelation we read of a lake of fire, and Isaiah speaks of the damned, that the Lord will smite them with corrupt air. And in Job they shall skip from the waters of the snow to extremity of heat. And in the same we read, that the earth is dark and covered with the darkness of death and miserable darkness. Moreover, also these elements are placed in the angels in heaven and the blessed intelligences. There is in them a stability of their essence, which is an earthly virtue, and which is the steadfast seed of God. Also their mercy and piety in a watery cleansing virtue. Hence by the psalmist they are called waters, where he, speaking of the heavens, saith, who rulest the waters that are higher than the heavens. Also in them their subtile breath is air, and their love is shining fire. Hence they are called in Scripture the wings of the wind. And in another place the psalmist speaks of them, who makest angels thy spirits and thy ministers of flaming fire. Also according to others of angels, some are fiery as seraphim, and authorities and powers, earthy as cherubim, watery as thrones and archangels airy as dominions and principalities. Do we not also read of the original maker of all things, that the earth shall be opened and bring forth a Savior? Is it not spoken of the same, that he shall be a fountain of living water, cleansing and regenerating? Is it not the same Spirit breathing the breath of life, and the same, according to Moses and Paul's testimony, a consuming fire? That elements, therefore, are to be found everywhere, and in all things after their manner, no man can deny. First in these inferior bodies, seculent and gross, and in celestials more pure and clear. But in super-celestials living, and in all respects blessed. 
elements, therefore, in the exemplary world are ideas of things to be produced, and intelligences are distributed powers, and heavens are virtues, and inferior bodies gross forms. Chapter 9 Of the virtues of things natural, depending immediately upon elements. Of the natural virtues of things, some are elementary as to heat, to cool, to moisten, to dry, and they are called operations, or first qualities, and the second act. For these qualities only do wholly change the whole substance, which none of the other qualities can do. And some are in things compounded of elements, and these are more than first qualities, and such are those that are maturating, digesting, resolving, mollifying, hardening, restringing, absturging, corroding, burning, opening, evaporating, strengthening, mitigating, conglutinating, obstructing, expelling, retaining, attracting, repercussing, stupefying, bestowing, lubrifying, and many more. Elementary qualities do many things in a mixed body, which they cannot do in the elements themselves. And these operations are called secondary qualities, because they follow the nature and proportion of the mixture of the first virtues, as largely it is treated of in physic books. As maturation, which is the operation of natural heat, according to a certain proportion and the substance of this matter, so induration is the operation of cold, so also is congelation, and so of the rest. And these operations sometimes act upon a certain member, as such which provoke water, milk, the flow, and they are called third qualities, which follow the second, as the second do the first. According, therefore, to these first, second, and third qualities, many diseases are both cured and caused. Many things also, they are artificially made, which men much wonder at, as is fire which burns water, which they call the Greek fire, of which Aristotle teaches many compositions in his particular treatise of the subject. In like manner, there is made a fire that is extinguished with oil and is kindled with cold water when it is sprinkled upon it, and a fire which is kindled either with rain, wind, or the sun, and there is made a fire which is called burning water, the confection whereof is well known, and it consumes nothing but itself. And also there are made fires that cannot be quenched, and incombustible oils and perpetual lamps, which can be extinguished neither with wind, nor water, nor any other way, which seems utterly incredible. But that there had been such a most famous lamp, which once did shine in the temple of Venus, in which the stone of asbestos did burn, which being once fired can never be extinguished. Also, on the contrary, wood or any other combustible matter may be so ordered, that it can receive no harm from the fire. There are made certain confections, with which the hands being anointed, we may carry red-hot iron in them, or put them into melted metal, or go with our whole bodies, being first anointed therewith, into the fire without any manner of harm, and such like things as these may be done. There's also a kind of flax, which Pliny calls asbestum, the Greeks call asbezin, which is not consumed by fire, of which Anaxilus saith that a tree compassed about with it may be cut down with insensible blows that cannot be heard. Chapter 10 Of the Occult Virtues of Things 
There are also other virtues in things which are not from any element, as to expel poison, to drive away the noxious vapors of minerals, to attract iron or anything else. And these virtues are a sequel of the species and form of this thing or that thing, whence also they being little in quantity or of great efficacy, which is not granted to any elementary quality. For these virtues, having much form and little matter, can do very much. But an elementary virtue, because it hath more materiality, requires much matter for its acting. And they are called occult qualities, because their causes lie hid, and man's intellect cannot in any way reach and find them out. Wherefore, philosophers have attained to the greatest part of them by long experience, rather than by the search of reason. For as in the stomach the meat is digested by heat, which we know, so it is changed by a certain hidden virtue which we know not. For truly it is not changed by heat, because then it should rather be changed by the fireside than in the stomach. So there are in things, besides the elementary qualities which we know, other certain inbred virtues created by nature which we admire and are amazed at, being such as we know not, and indeed seldom or never have been. As we read in Ovid of the Phoenix, one only bird which renews herself, all birds from others to derive their birth, but yet one fowl there is in all the earth, called by the Assyrians Phoenix, who the wane of age repairs and sows herself again. And in another place, Egyptus came to see this wondrous sight, and this rare bird is welcomed with delight. Long since Matreus brought a very great wonderment upon the Greeks and Romans concerning himself, he said that he nourished and bred a beast that did devour itself. Hence many to this day are solicitous what this beast of Matreus should be, who would not wonder that fishes should be digged out of the earth of which Aristotle, Theophrastus, and Polybius, the historian, makes mention, and those things which Pausanias wrote concerning the singing stones. All these are effects of occult virtues. So the ostrich concocts cold and most hard iron, and digests it into nourishment for his body, whose stomach, they also report, cannot be hurt with red-hot iron. So that little fish, called Echinus, doth so curb the violence of the winds, and appease the rage of the sea. That let the tempests be never so imperious and raging, the sails also bearing at full gale, it doth notwithstanding by its mere touch stay the ships and makes them stand still, that by no means they can be moved. So salamanders and crickets live in the fire, although they may sometimes seem to burn, yet they are not hurt. The like is said of a kind of bitumen, with which the vapors of the Amazons were said to be smeared over, by which means they could be spoiled, neither with sword nor fire. With which also the gates of Caspia, made of brass, are reported to be smeared over by Alexander the Great. We read also that Noah's Ark was joined together with this bitumen, and that it endured some thousands of years upon the mountains of Armenia. There are many such kind of wonderful things, scarce credible, which notwithstanding are known by experience, amongst which antiquity makes mention of satyrs, which were animals in shape half men and half brutes, yet capable of speech and reason. One whereof St. Hierome reporteth, spake once unto the holy Antonius the hermit, and condemned the error of the Gentiles in worshipping such poor creatures as they were, 
and desired him that he would pray unto the true God for him. Also, he affirms that there was one of these satyrs shewed openly alive, and afterwards sent to Constantine the emperor, 